Welcome to Absolute Clarity, the number one travel management podcast from Clarity, your business travel experts. I'm your host, Kyle Daniels, and today I'm welcoming Alexandra Kington and Owen Coombs to the show to talk all things GDPR. And welcome to the show, guys. Do you want to do a quick introduction of yourselves, just for the listeners? Yeah. Um, my name is Alexandra Kington, and I'm head of marketing here at Clarity. I'm Owen Coombs. I'm group head of IT compliance. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, guys. We are a week away from GDPR now. Uh, so we thought it'd be the best time to actually do a show about how to do GDPR. Obviously, obviously if you've not done it by now, yeah, <laughs> something's wrong. Just to clarify some things in the beginning, this isn't advice that you're going to take away. We're not the authority on this. ICO, we're really the ones that you need to be going and getting information from them. But like I say, if you haven't done that by now, I'd be prepared to pay that fine, um, <laughs> which is quite a lot. We'll get to that later. But what I want you to do is just kind of get you guys in the room and talk about essentially what we've been doing as in Clarity as a business, we're going to look at some common questions uh, and obviously we're going to cover your first, worst and best travel scenarios. So if you're sick of GDPR, skip to about eight minutes before the end of this podcast and just enjoy an eight minute show. <laughs> um, so probably you're the best person to start with, Owen. What is GDPR? GDPR, well, it's the, the acronym that everybody is familiar with now to the point of being sick of it, I guess. Uh, sort of emails of people getting in from services and companies they forgot that they ever subscribed to and some that potentially they didn't as well. Uh, GDPR actually stands for, the, stands for rather the General Data Protection Regulation and it's uh, an EU regulation that comes into force on the 25th of May and I think you know so the, the earlier reference to the emails that people have been getting in recently as everyone would have noticed there's a lot of kind of heat underneath it at the moment there's a lot of panic around it but the, the legislation itself has been in gestation for I think it's upwards of five years now so the idea that everyone is in a, a last-minute panic is a bit ludicrous, but that's kind of where we are nonetheless. Not us as a business, I just think, you know, as a society, generally people seem to be kind of waking up to this quite late. So for reasons we'll hopefully get into, I think we're in a pretty good place within this organisation. Well, that's that's kind of the, the regulation. And I guess the, the, the key point really on top of just the general context is the fact that it does replace the Data Protection Act in the UK. So it's many of the principles are the same, slightly more nuanced, and we'll probably get into the ways in which it builds on and kind of augments the Data Protection Act a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's the main point, really. It kind of replaces it as legislation. And yeah. the fact that we are, you know, sort of committed to Brexit has no bearing on it whatsoever. You know, it's, it will come into to force and, and remain in force. Yeah. Just how sick of it are you at the minute? How sick of GDPR? Or is it what's keeping you in a job right now? Do you just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's you're happy with it? In a job, yeah. Do you know what, there's, there's kind of at the risk of, you know, answering quite a, a frivolous question with a, you know, sort of an overly serious response. What GDPR, it, I think, is a contributor to what generally in, in information security as a whole, we refer to as the concept of cyber fatigue. And that's a real kind of, um, it's something that I first saw referenced on the BBC. And it's kind of this whole general kind of overexposure that people have and as a consequence they're just sick to death of hearing about you know sort of viruses malware you know sort of um sort of on the back of wanna cry last year everybody been told to make sure that you know you're fully patched and your antivirus is up to date and we've gone from people kind of just gradually trying to make themselves more comfortable with the concept in most cases you've just been online and living your life online 
to this suddenly been a load of kind of rules and, and kind of standards and sort of personal diligence that you have to make sure that you've done. And GDPR is just kind of, you know, one other task to worry about, I think, from a lot of people's perspectives. And so it's very difficult to keep people engaged on it. And certainly when, you know, there's this almost, you know, this, you've alluded to it earlier, but, you know, sort of this concept of these enormous fines that can, in theory, be handed out on the back of GDPR, that just makes it something that people are even more likely to kind of put in the box with, you know, all the other bad things they don't want to think about and, you know, screw the lid down and and forget exists. So that, that's the challenge really, making sure that people are kind of not only engaged, but you know, sort of to the point where they're willing to participate and, and you know, sort of work with you on, on what needs to be done. Yeah. Do you think that people are not willing to participate because they don't understand it fully? L cyber and GDPR, they don't fully understand the risks. And like you say, you've kind of got into this world now where we're all connected. 24 7 yep. and then suddenly it's all oh, this great you know connectivity the fact that you've got the internet on your phone Ooh, hang on yeah. it's a risk and people either don't fully understand and comprehend that risk or just think oh it's just another way of people selling stuff to me yeah i mean i guess i mean i invite your comments on you know so sort of both of you really but it certainly seems that you're touching on it there that you know you've, you've gone from this idea of interconnectedness being kind of you know literally the brave new world that we're all entering into with all of the opportunity that affords businesses and yet suddenly no sooner has everybody kind of assimilated the idea of living your life online as a good thing and potentially a source mm. of great benefit then oh suddenly it's a bad thing because of reasons you know a through to z and, and that's a difficult message for people to to kind of to process as well i think that and one of the and it's difficult to, to quantify really but there's also the sense that this is just potentially the latest i've referred to like the the y2k issue yeah i've heard that and there's, i don't appreciate a lot of people listening that might not necessarily mean much to them but this is back to you know sort of year 2000 where you know by virtue of a lot of kind of different applications and code being written without the capability to go past 2000 without resetting you know planes were going to start falling out of the sky mm. and satellites were going to start you know spinning off towards the sun and we'd all lose communications and and a lot of people spent an awful lot of money getting in consultants to kind of you know sort of prep them and, and de-risk and in the end not an awful lot happened potentially to do with the fact that you know people had actually prepared well but also because potentially there was also a lot of hype around it as well and I do wonder whether or not people are just going to potentially, you know, sort of May 25th will happen and people come into work the following week and, you know, we're not inundated with bad news on the back of GDPR and people will then think, you know what, it's probably just a bit of a fuss about nothing. And, mm. and that, again, is, is another barrier to getting people engaged in it. I mean, I think, obviously, as a business, Clarity has been fully engaged in it. Um, we started preparations way, way back to start thinking about how we monitor our data, what we do with our data, where the data flows are. Um, and I think from a marketing perspective, it's been something that's been on my radar for a good 18 months, two years, a bit because of the scaremongering that's been going on. Um, and I think largely because of the aspect of the human rights element of GDPR, that it's not necessarily a business legislation. It's there to protect the individuals. And obviously, as a marketer, we are marketing out to individuals. Now, obviously, there's different nuances for business-to-business -business marketing to business-to-consumer marketing. So we at Clarity fall into business-to-business, -business, so it's slightly different for us. But my kind of worries and fears of it have been that it will be, it'll be me and my team that bring down the business, <laughs> the end landers with a 4% of global annual turnover fine because we've accidentally sent out an incorrect email. I think that's where I've been 
quite concerned about it. But because I feel that we potentially marketing, luckily we've done all our prep, and I think we're pretty sorted on it, but that we could be the ones that cause the risk. And I think people, it's that people element. No matter what the processes are, people are often your greatest risk within an organization. That's it. I mean, generally, you know, just not just within the context of GDPR, but absolutely sort of from a, a wider information security perspective, you know, you hear this phrase and it's becoming a bit of a cliche in itself, you know, securing the human people being your, your greatest weakness as, as well as, you know, your greatest asset as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the, the, the point that you mentioned there about sort of this, this concept of um, sort of people being to blame and this, you know, sort of almost the, the way in which kind of online information can kind of turn on you and on itself is that that's kind of really to do with the way in which the GDPR does build on and, and kind of the, the way in which it's a big step on from the Data Protection Act because it is very much about accountability. Mm-hmm. It's about organizations or you, you sort of begin to become familiar, if not already, with these phrases, you know, data controller, data processor, data subject. You know, the way in which data controllers um, potentially and, and the people that they subcontract to as processors become accountable for mm. information and a mishandling of that information. The GDPR is quite prescriptive in terms of, you know, what remedy there is open to people if they perceive that they their information has been mismanaged in, in the context of the regulation. Yeah, and I think making people aware of what is done with your personal data is really important. You know, as we said, we've got to this stage where everybody is comfortable being online, your lives are assimilated online, but possibly without very little thought of, yeah, have my email if it means that I can, you know, download this app. Yeah, sync my Facebook to this API, it's fine, you know, and then you realise actually all the information that has been gathered on you. I think, you know, the whole Facebook scandal last month was a really major part of that, of starting to think, hang on, have I just been a bit too lax with this and I think the the GDPR hopefully you know for our kids kind of the next generation coming through they might be that little bit more security savvy data savvy and actually take that moment to sit and think right yeah am I comfortable giving my email address my home address how can this information be collated what use is it being put to and all of these kind of things and I think Currently, especially you know, when I started getting online kind of teenagers, I didn't think about any of that. I didn't think about the security aspect. And a lot of information could have been gathered and kind of, well, freely given, but without me fully understanding the implications of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, the other benefit of, of, of the regulation is the fact that you know, it'll be, there will be teething problems and it will take, you know, significant fines. And I think people too, you know, back to this concept of maybe people thinking, oh, it's a big fuss about nothing, nothing's really going to happen. Well, eventually, you know, these big fines will start being handed out and there will be, you know, sort of scandals of a magnitude and, and kind of in terms of what's actually happened behind them that will, you know, will be front page newsworthy possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will, over time, that's the way in which the regulation and the, the, the necessary behaviours of organisations on the back of it will become mm-hmm. embedded. And so, as you say, you know, sort of our children's generation will grow up kind of thinking twice before they hand over information. And likewise, organisations hopefully will meet them coming back the other way in terms yeah. of by default, they will treat any information that they are provided with a lot more responsibly. Mm-hmm. But it's not a situation for us to be in because like you alluded to, I probably aging us here, but we didn't grow up with the internet as such, especially not as it is today. 
So now you see more people living their lives online, almost like an open wound, and emails have become commodities for a lot. There was a long time when an email was just that. It wasn't anything really important. It used to be your telephone number that you didn't want to give out. People wanted to go back to your directory because they didn't want to get the spam phone calls. Now it's essentially the emails become the most powerful weapon for a salesperson, that they can send you that information, that you can essentially get spammed consistently. From a marketing point of view, do you think some marketers are going to struggle to deal with this GDPR? Because like I say, these email lists that you just used to mm-hmm. throw it out to like 60,000 people and see something stuck, do you think like marketers are going to find it hard to find a new way of adapting to that? I think any marketer worth their salt will not find it difficult mm. because it's not really best practice anyway. Regardless of GDPR, we, and in previous roles, I've always done thorough cleansers and refreshers of data. So if if I've got a mailing list of 5,000 and then I have a look at it after six months and find out that actually 1,000 people have never even bothered opening my emails, they get cold. What is the point of sending out an email to that 1,000 people that are just simply, they're clearly not interested. And even though... I think previously it was, you know, we've got a mailing list of 50,000, look how great we are. And it's lies down lies and statistics. Got a mailing list of 50,000, only 500 open it. You know, it it would be better surely to have a mailing list of 500 and have a 90% open rate. So I think if you are a good marketer and you've been thinking in a very customer-centric way anyway, this shouldn't really hit you too hard. And as well, if you've been using some of the best practice of you know, getting opt-in, making sure that people have consented, because all of this as well, it's only for those who haven't given consent. If you have already consented to be contacted for marketing, you're fine. You yeah. know, If you have that consent and you can prove that you've asked for that consent, it's fine. So I think, yeah, some marketers will be because I still, I'm sure you all receive it. I receive it myself. Completely untargeted, completely irrelevant emails that I just get chucked out to me from somebody that's clearly gleaned, you know, my hotmail address from way back right. when. And that was my fault because I've put it out there. But I think actually marketers, some marketers that are still using those methods will need to get more savvy. But as I say, those worth their salt have probably been doing this for the past couple of years anyway. I mean, we've got a product launch in the next couple of months called Go to Track, um, which essentially allows us to track the whereabouts of our travelers, uh, the employees, basically our clients, employees, anywhere around the world. It's a great tool for duty of care. That must fall into GDPR aspect in terms of you're tracking someone, you're getting in touch with them. We send travel alerts out on a regular basis updating our travelers on incidents all over the world so that they're fully prepared. How have we prepared in that sense with with that side of things? I think the key here, and and this is where I attempt to to draw a few points together and either, you know, kind of go down in flames or, or, you know, sort of hopefully tie it all together and and make it clear, but that touches on, the response to that touches on a number of issues that Alexandra's mentioned in there in terms of, because the way in which, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the perspective that you're taking on it, I'm sure when you're, you mentioned the nervousness about, 
you know, the doorbell ringing and somebody coming in from the information commissioner's office saying, I want to speak to somebody <laughs> in marketing is yeah. because so much of the GDPR and the way in which people must now behave, not that it didn't previously, but it's brought into sharper focus, this concept of consent, consent having been given and, you know, sort of in terms of good practice being, you know, resought and, and re-given by the data subject to use their information. Yeah. And so... The, the situation that, that we're in, in terms of a lot of our business processes, um, by virtue of us being you know, sort of a provider of travel management services, is we will consider ourselves and we will be considered under the GDPR as data processors, whereas our clients are the data controller. And, and in the context of a lot of our processes, our clients being the data controller means that consent has been obtained for us processing traveller information by virtue of their own kind of internal um, sort of terms of employment, for example, or people have to sign up internally at the institution who we provide services on behalf of in order to use our services. So they're really on the hook for getting consent, uh, whereas the activities that Alexandra is referring to, that's when we're actually kind of, you know, the focus is on us to make sure that we've, that we've got consent there. Mm. And back to the, the question about when these kind of tracking type facilities that, that, that we can offer, it, it's back to that concept again of their, them being opt-in services that we offer to our clients and you know our customers and they can or can't you know so they can make the decision to either take them up or not yeah. and and if they do then you know that's something that it will be up to them to make sure that they've notified their internal representatives of sufficiently you know sort of this travel provision service includes this you know sort of tracking service and the benefits they can explain to them but you know the opt-in is basically on behalf of their data subjects by that organization so so you know as long as they've they've consented to that you know sort mm. of or confirmed consent as part of the the contracted service we're providing to them then that's what enables us to provide that service to them and you would hope as well as an employee of the businesses that are taking on board this product that your employer would have the respect for you to say, can I track you? Um, there's been lots of things kind of in the news around these tracking products of at what stage does the tracking stop and at what depth does the tracking go to? So is it just, you know, you know that I'm heading to Dublin for a conference? Do you just track the fact that I am in the general vicinity of Dublin and that I arrive there? Or do you track it down to the level of, you know, that I'm in the hotel room? or that, you know, I might have got up and gone for a jog in the morning. What's that level? And I think you would hope that an employer anyway, regardless of GDPR, would actually ask their employees at what level are they happy to be tracked. Because I can see the arguments both ways. I can see the absolute argument for just now I'm in Dublin, I don't need you to know when I've gone to bed and I don't need you to know when I'm going for a run. But I can also see the argument of actually I'm in a different city Potentially, I might be on my own or with colleagues. Do you know what? If you do know that I've gone for a run and I've not returned, that could be really useful too. Absolutely. I think a lot of it is, yeah. is very individual preferences of how you perceive tracking and what you as an individual are comfortable with. That's it. And, and that's, again, you know, it, it's making sure that, and, and this again is something that I think will probably be enforced by default by the regulation in, in future any kind of service provision you can think of will, you know, more intuitively be tuned into the concept of needing to tailor itself or, or allow, you know, be tailorable to that individual's needs based on their consent and their wants and preferences. Right, well, that's uh, it for part one of the show. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsors. Are you looking to make cost savings to your travel programme but don't know where to start? 
Do you want to make your business travel more productive, but don't know how? Do you need to improve travel efficiency, but can't find a way? These are big issues which will resonate with many business travelers and travel buyers. In our new report, Planes, Trains and Marginal Gains, we tackle these issues and give you the tools to make small changes that equal big savings. To find out more, simply visit claritytm.co.uk and download the report today. The final bit of the uh, topics on GDPR I wanted to cover was we've been invited to, over the past kind of year, a lot of events in the Northwest surrounding GDPR. These are just some of the questions that come up. Um, they say there's no stupid questions, but you might um, think twice after listening <laughs> to some of these. So what I'll do, because Owen, you are our internal GDPR expert, I'm going to wing these over to you, and Alexandra, you can obviously chip in on these. So the first question is, with GDPR, what happens if somebody gives me their business card? Could I be fined for emailing them? Oh, I've heard this so many times. Yeah, and yeah I think after that expert billing, I think I should insert some kind of disclaimer or caveat in there. Yeah. <laughs> do whatever you Said want. Said like a true GDPR <laughs> yeah. expert. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that maybe just confirms As long it, as you can afford it, do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this, funnily enough, you, you mentioned frequent reference to this and a couple of GDPR-related conferences and events I've been to recently. People have mentioned this as well, you know, sort of joking about, oh, am I going to have to, you know, sort of our business card's going to have to be printed up with signature strips on the back to, you know, I consent to this information being used. And so previously, I, I, before working here, I was um, in consultancy background, most recently doing kind of like public sector and central government IT. So the reason I mentioned that is, you know, sort of on a firmly non-commercial footing. And so this whole kind of class of information, if you like, what you might consider to be prospect or lead information, was not something I really had cause to think about much. And it struck me not long after I arrived that, you know, that, that there's a lot of concerns and issues attendant on that. Um, to go back to the, the question about, you know, the business card, I mean, I think if you have it, unless you've stolen it, which is unlikely, then it's been given to you. And therefore, if it's been given to you, it's been on the basis that, you know, you should use that as, as a prompt for correspondence. I think to put yourself really on a safe foot in what you would do is even if somebody's, you know, a kind of a couple of cocktails to the good at an event and is throwing around their cards willy-nilly to people, then that's probably the reason why you should get in touch with that person, remind them that you've got that card and where, you know, sort of the situation in which you, you first laid your hands on it, i.e. Yeah. you gave it to me. And if you're trying to put them on some kind of formalized footing, back to what Alexandra mentioned about you know, mailing lists or any kind of automated correspondence, then you would point them towards your mechanism for getting consent on that. Or if it's just to continue the dialogue, then you would word your contact with them such that you know, you're, you're kind of saying, is it okay for me to you know, contact mm. you on this email address and, and just make sure that you have consent in that manner. Yeah, we've been really clear with our sales and account management teams on this that of course still go out still swap your business cards still follow up on that but if you're going to put them onto the marketing list the actual newsletter list then you need to get them to have written consent for that so i need to see an email saying yes i consent for you to add me to a list um, we actually had a meeting with one of our um, supplier partners the other week um, a company that we've worked with for years we know really well all sat around the table and I mentioned our monthly newsletters that we send out and um, both of the contacts from the company said oh do you mind just you know adding me on the list and making sure that I get this it'd be really useful so I went into hyper GDPR mode and I was like I can do that but I need 
you both to email me to ask to be put on the list so I've got a written record of consent and at the time you know our um, sales director that was with me kind of chuckled a bit they chuckled a bit but afterwards I emailed them and said just just reply to my email if you would like to be on the list I'm happy to do so can you just confirm that you're happy for me to do that email back said that they were and they're on the list so I think it doesn't need much more um but that I'm wary of just putting anybody on the list any random business card and just putting them on the list which I know from previous experience in previous businesses people have done that the LinkedIn one I think is the worst of <laughs> oh well you you know you're linked in with me I can scrape all your email yeah. addresses pop you in a list and I'll spam you every Sunday morning mm, not really because they've no. not they've consented to link in with you not to receive your marketing communications so I think as long as you're asking for that consent it's consent isn't it it is and you're using the data in the purpose for which it was given in the first place you're good but if you start deviating from that probably in trouble at the risk of sounding very kind of archetypally british about it you know it just comes down to it's just basic politeness isn't it at the end of the good day good old I manners it's good old-fashioned <laughs> manners yeah so speaking of email lists somebody asks can you still buy email lists can you or should you yeah well that's the, yeah. <laughs> we're not talking morals yeah. here uh, yeah. <laughs> just, just the law yes i'm sure they're freely available i would say best practice would be no just from the two perspectives of you've not got provenance in terms of how the information was sourced and that almost, you know, intrinsic within that is a reference to whether or not there was any consent given to, you know, sort of get the information to build that list. And indeed, when you receive the list, if there's consent to contact those people, which there's no way of proving that there is. So it's probably best to steer clear. I'd, I'd sort of defer to, to Alexandra for a, a final comment on that. But my thought would be, no, it, it's just, yeah, you just wouldn't go near mm. lists without any degree of provenance behind them. Final comment, Alexandra? I have worked in that industry previously, a B2B marketing yeah. industry, and I have many friends that still work in the industry um, who do feel that they have procedures and policies in place that they can give you written confirmation and safeguard. But as you say, you are putting your trust in that. Obviously, if that industry went down, that's an entire industry with a lot of people mm -hmm. and a lot of jobs, which I think is a major concern from a purely marketing perspective. So me, as in my role as head of marketing, I wouldn't risk it. I would be really super cautious and probably wouldn't go down that route. But again, kind of going back to my one of my previous points, I also think that that engagement level... I wouldn't have bought a list probably for the past couple of years anyway because I would want to have people who have chosen to sign up and have chosen to engage with me rather than trying to go out and trying to get people through different means, putting out great content that somebody would want to sign up for, giving a great offer, social presence, things like that, rather than buying a list of somebody that is may well be. And you can really hone them down and they do a lot of data profiling, etc. But ultimately this person might not be in the stage of for buying and I would just be harassing them so I think techniques have moved on somewhat but I'm sure if you spoke to these providers they would assure you that they were GDPR compliant. So, so back to that I guess that that concept of provenance you know if, if you were to feel absolutely confident say a pre-existing business relationship you know meant yeah. that you were very confident about the content of a list then then sure but it's uh, 
but generally I, I would mm. it's something that unless you absolutely had to are you willing to gamble four percent of your annual turnover exactly, yeah, yeah yeah i think what we're saying is marketers just get a better job um, <laughs> <laughs> so somebody's asked if we're leaving the eu do i still need to prepare for this because oh. this is an eu regulation it comes up all the time do we still need to do it yeah we do it's something that we're still going to be subject to um even after leaving the european union brilliant short and sweet that's what we like one of the parts of GDPR is the right to be forgotten. Now, one of the um, arguments against this that I heard was, can I keep some of these details so that I can keep them in a don't send list? <laughs> Surely that's, uh, yeah. this is, some of this is Cash just common 22. sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's actually a good premise to, to discuss something which is you know, kind of worth like an a, a issue or topic area within GDPR that's worth looking at in, in a bit more detail anyway, because it's a concept of justification comes up a lot. Um, you know, can you justify why you've got this information? And to, to address something that I think you alluded to earlier, Kyle, in, in terms of, you know, sort of um, demonstrating that you're doing enough and, you know, back to Alexandra's point about the Information Commissioner coming knocking, um, it's, it's not, or the, certainly the thought is from, from people I've spoken to, and again, back to the event I was at last week, which was sponsored by Travel or our, our legal advisors, the sense in the room there with some of the keynote speakers was that, you know, the, the Information Commissioner's Office is not on a mission to come and hobble absolutely everybody under GDPR, and that, you know, there are going to be, there will be so many, over time, instances of just absolute flagrant abuse of data protection, mm. if indeed there is any, that for people who just end up uh, inadvertently succumbing to some kind of breach behavior which may potentially need some kind of censure for the ICO as long as you can demonstrate that you are doing your level best and that incident happened in a wider environment of control of processes and procedures we're 27,001 compliant anyway we're moving towards the British standard 10,012 which is for per, uh, PIMS as they refer to it personal information management system you know in that context if you can demonstrate that you take this kind of thing seriously then you know that the ICO is going to be more inclined to work with you rather than against you okay and the final question if somebody is already on the mailing list can I just keep sending them emails I think you've answered that question haven't you if you have consent. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it's, it goes back down to consent. And I think so many, it's like those five stages of kind of realization, you, you know, your anger, your disbelief and all this kind yeah. of thing. And I kind of went through it and was going, oh my goodness, going to have to start from scratch and everything. But actually we do have consent. And as long as you have consent, yeah. it's business as usual. It is just for those people that haven't consented. But again, if they've not consented from a marketing perspective, they've not consented to receive your marketing, you don't want to be marketing to them anyway. They're not interested. Focus on the people who are interested in your messages and in your communication. And the ones that aren't, they'll either come round and sign up and consent at some stage, or you're just better off without them. And it shows it's working. The amount of emails I've had in the past few weeks of people trying to re-consent me yeah. proves that they didn't have the consent in the first place. Yeah, so. there's, there's very. I've had so many of those, I'm sure our listeners will have done and everyone in this room will have done the amount you're right Kyle that I've just gone no and the ones that I've gone who who are you yeah. when did this happen when on <laughs> earth did I sign yeah. up for you but yeah I've I've unsubscribed from so many over the past few weeks but again sitting in you know putting my marketing cap on brilliant for them because you know that yes their lists will diminish mm -hmm. 
but their engagement will increase because you've got rid of the likes of me who for however many years has just gone delete, delete, delete whenever I've seen this spam in my eyes come through into my inbox. You're actually only going to get people who are engaged and want to buy your products and services or listen to what you've got to say. Thanks very much for that, guys. We're now going to move on to the final and probably best topic. Um, (laughs) And welcome back to all those people that just skips that whole conversation (laughs) because they didn't like it. Uh, we're still have a chance <laughs> to disappoint them or bore them. Yeah, well, <laughs> they don't know that yet. So we're going to cover the first, worst, and best travel scenarios for you both. We'll start with Owen. Save the best or last. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, hope. So, what's your first travel scenario? A first travel scenario. So, is this as in first ever, first business travel scenario kind of? Whichever's uh, more entertaining, I think, for the again, for the audience. Again, you put me under a lot of pressure there. <laughs> I, I can only disappoint. <laughs> yeah. Well. No, I think uh, the the first one was one of the best as well because I think the um, the first kind of proper career job that I got after university, the one where you know your mum and dad kind of wipe the sweat from their brow and think university wasn't an expensive waste of time was with an organization that should probably remain nameless I guess but they had they were pretty flagrant with the travel budget at the time and I used to have to go out to uh, Brussels pretty much every week and the first time I ever went they used to fly people in business class by default and I went into this business lounge and I was the only person in there and there was this elaborate bar fully stocked and I just refer to it when I got back as like the pub without a landlord. You just kind of <laughs> went up and helped yourself. And I just couldn't get my head around that. It was kind of, I think you just grabbed a handful of nuts and a can of Coke or something. Just kind of, and then, you know, you very quickly get used to going up and kind of, you know, helping yourself <laughs> yeah. while you can. Oh. So, yeah, but that was, I think just as, you know, sort of a, a relatively young graduate kind of doing that type of thing for the first time. There was a lot of novelty to that. But yeah, the novelty can and, and does very quickly wear off with, with that type of travel. And your worst Worst, um, I think it was probably worse just in terms of, you know, back to this concept of Britishness and, you know, kind of politeness and, and also embarrassment. It was a meeting that I had to go to, I think it was in, in Paris once, and it was, there was fog on the runway in Manchester and in Paris, and we were delayed for that long that actually the meeting we were going to attend had already finished in France, and so, and we were still delayed, so we ended up kind of going to the desk and saying, listen, this is a trip that we don't need to make now, myself and my colleague. And so again, back to everybody being very British and polite about it, they said, all right, well, we don't have to fly. So we said, well, right, well, that would be good if we didn't. And so they ended up having to go and hold everybody up further while they got our baggage <laughs> off and kind of checked us back through. <laughs> and we even had to suffer the embarrassment of giving back our duty free because we oh. had to <laughs> <laughs> So it's one of these things you just think, actually now I will probably just gone to Paris for the evening and, you know, not fessed up to it, but there we go. And your best. Best, I have to say, is, is a personal one. We went with the kids to Lapland, uh, I was going to say two, nearly three years ago. And that was just, that's the, the one trip I've made anywhere where, you know, literally enjoyed every second from the, the minute we got to the airport to getting back again. Magical experience. One that, you know, myself and my wife said when we got back, however, you know, sort of pampered it sounds and unrealistic, it's one that, you know, sort of every kid should have in their lifetime. It was just super. Bit of advice for the parents out there. <laughs> Speaking of parents, <laughs> Alexandra, <laughs> what's your first? First, well, I had to have a, a think about this, but actually my first business trip foreign business trip was when I graduated from university and I went to work in South Korea for a year so me and my now husband um, decided to spend a year out in South Korea teaching English as a foreign language and we set off got down to Heathrow flew over to Dubai changed flew on to um, South Korea managed to get from 
Incheon Airport in Seoul through to Suwon, which is a kind of a town outside of Seoul, probably like Reading is to London. Got there, got to the bus stop we were told to get to, and we just had to wait for the owner of the school to turn up and pick us up, which we didn't really think about of well, who is this Who is this gentleman going to be? So we're two kind of, you know, 21-year-old <laughs> graduates stood on a street corner in Suwon just waiting for someone to pull up. And eventually this black sedan pulled up. This Korean gentleman got out. I said, oh, are you, you English? You English teachers? Yep, yep, we're the English teachers. Right, come in. Okay, so we just got in his car. And when I, <laughs> we, we was all okay. He was yeah. the teacher. He took us off to our, our little flat. But it was only when I was relaying this story to my dad to tell him that I was safe and sound, I got such a telling off. If you tell me you travelled like halfway across the world, stood on a street corner and then got into a car with a random yeah, gentleman. On the basis that, wow, they look English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally on wow. that basis. Um, so that was my first. Yeah. I've learned since then that I should probably have either used a code word or at least got his telephone we didn't even have his telephone number we were just stood there we'd said you know we'll be there for about 5 p.m we just waited at 5 p.m for this person to turn up um so yeah i've, I've learned a little bit since then um but that was my first experience of um traveling for work do you have any recollection yeah. of that sedan just going by a few times now in retrospect <laughs> yeah. the driver giggling as he went yeah. <laughs> quite possibly yeah. knowing the gentleman that wouldn't surprise me if he did do that go on and your worst my worst one is a personal one so whilst i was whilst we were living out in south korea you only kind of got two weeks holiday and everybody took kind of holiday at the same time as the way that they do it out there. So we'd booked to go to Shanghai and um, I'd done all the bookings and I'd left the visas to my husband to sort out. So you needed two visas, um, a visa to re-enter Korea and be able to work again um, and then a visa to enter China it's because we weren't coming from the UK. So we got through to Shanghai. We had an absolute nightmare getting the visas and getting through the airport in Incheon and ended up doing like the Home Alone style running um, to the gate, which was horrendous. Managed to actually make the flight, got on there, got to Shanghai, started going through passport control and the gentleman at passport control looking through our passports saying, visa, visa, like language communication barriers yeah. um so i showed him the work visa for korea the re-entry visa no 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 china china visa visa i was like well I th i've not i thought we were okay my husband had told me we didn't need a visa we were fine because we're, we're british so james comes up what's the problem and he's going visa visa so we got taken to one side and um at this point the gentleman was trying to say you know where where have you come from um, meaning, where did your journey start? But my husband jumped in and went, oh, we're English. And As just, if that's enough. Yeah, yeah that's enough. You don't we're, we're, oh, just go for it. We've, we've <laughs> got the maroon... GDPR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've got the maroon passport. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, it's fine, chap. And, um, yeah, this just got the gentleman's back up completely. And he just took one look at my husband, looked him up and down and said, no visa. So we then had our passports confiscated... We got walked at gunpoint to a little room um, where the passport control was and told to sit and wait. So waiting for some time, obviously getting more and more nervous as these policemen are coming in with guns. And these are not just like handguns. These are, you know, huge kind of semi-automatic 
Weapons. Could have been worse. They could have been coming in with rubber, uh, rubber gloves. <laughs> true, yeah, just true. Just snapping them on and leaving again. <laughs> and eventually they kind of got around to dealing with us and they gave us this document and asked us to sign this document, which was completely in Chinese. So I was saying, well, I, I, what am I signing? They couldn't fully explain to me what I was signing. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm not signing it. I can't sign something. It could be anything. My husband's just going, look, they've got guns. Sign yeah. <laughs> the paper. I'm saying, but no, what what if they're what if they're like going to, you know, take my firstborn child? What 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 are we signing? Eventually, through many tears and stress, we signed um, the paper. And then we got marched through Shanghai Airport at gunpoint. There was a gentleman in front of us brandishing our passports, us and then a gentleman with a gun, took us all the way to the boarding point of the plane. And only at that point did they hand us back our passports where we could actually walk through um, the tunnel onto the plane and then stood pointing their guns at us whilst we got on the plane. And the worst bit was that we got onto the plane that we just literally got off which had been delayed for us and our luggage spent longer in Shanghai than we did so we've never been back because I have a fear that I will <laughs> yeah. enter the country it's, and they'll not <laughs> as a picture of you on the yeah, wall, they'll imprison no. me no. and I've never found out what this document says yeah. so that that was a pretty bad travel experience to I be honest the key takeaway from that is if you want consent you need a big gun <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> yes. so go on the best the, the best, best I think going from a business perspective, so I've traveled um, with business, but tended to have worked for smaller businesses where you did a lot of the booking yourself. Uh, since coming to Clarity, it's the first time that I've traveled with a business that's got a TMC, we are a TMC, and kind of using that experience as our clients would use it. Um, so recently traveled a month or so ago to Dublin really smooth process, um, managed it end-to-end of looking at um, the actual flight booking. There was a taxi waiting for me when I got there, going straight to the hotel, which had all been pre-booked and pre-authorised, through to going back. We were then ended up being a little bit early for our flight, straight into access for um, an exec lounge, which you could all get charged back. Again, that's the first time that I'd ever used an exec lounge and absolutely went to town on it. I was like, oh, free food. <laughs> I just need You're to... You're not blacklisted, yeah, first yeah. and last. <laughs> I, I did wonder if we would be. But, I, you know, I think that's the Yorkshire in me of, well, you know, pay my money, get your money's worth, yeah. <laughs> stock up on crisps. Um, and it was just a, such a really smooth journey, but it really kind of opened my eyes to the experience that our customers and our clients will have with us um, you know the fact that somebody knew at each point of the journey where I was I wasn't traveling on my own but it just made me feel more secure that I had that security and that duty of care there and that I knew that if anything had have gone wrong I was just a phone call away from people that could just sort my problems out um, so I think yeah that as a, a general overall kind of all-encompassing um, experience was probably my best well, thanks very much for coming on the show, guys. We've been Absolute Clarity. I've been your host, Kyle Daniels. Thanks to Alexandra and Owen for being on the show. If you want to know more about GDPR, if you just Google GDPR, ICO's got the website. They've got a 12 steps to take for preparing for GDPR. If you've got any questions, email those to podcast at claritytm.co.uk. Get involved in the conversation using hashtag Absolute Clarity, and you can follow us at Clarity underscore TM. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.